Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and it is the 31st of December, 2021. That's right, it's only a matter of hours before this year is finished. I'm going to be uh, talking today about one aspect of the appetitive reward pathway that gets a lot of attention from pharmaceutical sciences, psychiatry, as well as general medicine and neuroscience. And that, of course, is an association to addiction uh, with the appetitive reward pathway. So let's just get right into this. Addiction is a state that's been described where human engages in a compulsive behavior. The behavior becomes reinforcing because of rewarding of the pleasurable. And ultimately, addiction leads to a loss of control um, in the ability to limit the intake of whatever the addiction is associated with. Now, addiction is associated with an activation of the reward pathway. And ethanol is no different from any of the other addictive um, drugs that have been described and analyzed a great deal uh, at the pharmacological level as well as from the neuroscientific level. So alcohol actually functions to activate a nuclei called the globus pilitis, and it hijacks the reward pathway. We talked a lot about alcohol uh, in previous lectures, so today I'm not going to spend that much time on it. I will say that all abuse substances, including ethanol, ultimately enhance dopamine activity. And this is, of course, particularly related to pleasure, motor, and cognitive function. But there are other pathways involved besides dopamine. The dopamine pathways, of course, start with the substantia nigra, uh, the ventral tegmental area, where dopamine is released. And then the first subnucleus from that region is the nucleus accumbens. And then dopamine is transported to the frontal cortex, the striatum, and of course, to the hippocampus. Uh, functions here for dopamine and the dopamine pathway, again, to remind you, our reward, and that includes motivation, pleasure, euphoria, motor functions, sometimes in the element of fine-tuning, compulsion, as we mentioned, perseverance, and indeed decision-making are all linked to the dopaminergic pathway. Now, the other pathway of note in addiction is the serotonin pathway, which is also intimately linked to the reward system. Serotonin pathway, starts off from the RAFE nucleus. Uh, one of the first targets is the nucleus accumbens again. It also ends up serotonin into the frontal cortex and into the striatum and also into the hippocampus. So the nuclei that are visited by the dopaminergic pathway are also visited by the serotoninergic pathways. Key feature here. And functions of serotonin pathway, of course, are mood, 
in terms of neuropsychiatry, memory processing, and of course, the sleep modality. So when we think about dopamine or serotonin, it can be synthesized in the neuronal terminal and move through the vesicular um, transport mechanism. Once the, there's a stimulation, the vesicle will fill up with dopamine. The dopamine will be sent to the terminal of the uh, next neuron, and that will normally be a DA or a 5-HT receptor because dopamine and serotonin will both be secreted uh, and therefore transmitted through the uh, synapse. So some drugs of abuse can cause dopamine release directly. Opioids, particularly the narcotics, will activate opioid receptors. Nicotine activates nicotine receptors, of course. Marijuana activates the cannabinoid. And then caffeine and alcohol. Uh, alcohol will activate GABA receptors, which of course is an inhibitory transmitter. All right, so we can get into more of the details here, but drug types like amphetamines, uh, and that includes methamphetamine like MDMA or ecstasy, will induce DA release from vesicles and reverse transporter. So many drugs of abuse act on receptors that endogenous transmitters, of course, will activate. Uh, nicotine will work where acetylcholine normally does, and the action is on ligand-gated ligand channels. Um, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is a drug, will um, mimic the endogenous cannabinoids like anandamide and 2-AG, and its action is on the cannabinoid receptors, which are G-protein-coupled receptors. Opiates, opioids uh, will function in, similarly to the endogenous ligands in kephalin, beta-endorphin, and their action will be on opioid G-protein-coupled receptors, and these include the mu, the delta, and the kappa. Cocaine has only that CART pathway we mentioned, as does amphetamine. And the action is going to be on serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline transporters. Um, and these are all actual multiple functioning at the G-protein coupled receptor mediated response. So there's a lot of crosstalk here. Uh, three classes of drugs that act on separate effectors. They all increase the release of dopamine. So the class one are GPCRs, and those include opioids, cannabinoids. Class two are the ionotropic receptor ion channels, and those are associated with nicotine and ethanol. And then there are the transporters and the drugs that mediate the transporter uh, and facilitate transporter function in the reward pathway are cocaine, methamphetamine, and drugs like ecstasy. So let's talk about the class one, the GPCRs, which the opioids function at. 
These are GI or inhibitory couple receptors. Best known acute actions are all inhibitory. They increase potassium conductance. They decrease calcium conductance. And actually, they tend to decrease transmitter release. By inhibiting neurons that release GABA, opioids can result in the excitation, or that is de-inhibition, uh, in the hippocampus. And it's thought that this is what is occurring because it includes this dopamine-associated release at the VTA. So opioids increase dopamine release by de-inhibiting dopamine neurons, okay? De-inhibiting. As with all GPCRs, there's much more going on with the opioid receptor activation, and we can discuss this when we get into downstream effectors if I decide to go down that route. Now, the acute actions of opioids and neurons, increase, they increase potassium conductance, decrease calcium conductance, and decrease transmitted release. We've already said this, but the long-term actions of opioids and neurons are an acute desensitization and, in fact, receptor endocytosis and, therefore, receptor downregulation. Okay? So then you have to ask the question, how is this related to addiction? Well, you think about morphine, which is, of course, a plant-derived opioid, it's an alkaloid compound. It will bind to the mu opi opioid receptor, which is a classical GIO, GPCR inhibitory. Now, at, at the early stages of opioid receptor binding, you get an inhibition because that's a G protein inhibitory complex, inhibition of adenylate cyclases one and eight. However, prolonged activation will actually increase the adenylate cyclase. With that, you'll get an increase in cyclic AMP. This is prolonged addiction to morphine now. You'll get an increase in cyclic AMP, which will turn on protein kinase a, and then protein kinase A will positively result in the expression of all the genes controlled by cyclic AMP response element. That's CREB in the nucleus. Um, PKA will also enhance electrical excitability, and that'll include sodium uptake and potassium release from the neuron. And there will also be, because PK is a kinase, a regulation of many other cellular processes involved in intermediary metabolism. So you're going to get altered gene expression from chronic opioid addiction. That's what we're saying here. So with an increase in cyclic AMP, you actually get a rebound in the soma of adenylate cyclase superactivation. And that means the translation of that process is an increase in PKA, protein kinase A. And again, that's going to bring cations into the soma of the neuron. In the nerve terminal, other things are happening. The increase in cyclic AMP will alter the sensitivity in many signal transduction pathways, the ones I just mentioned, plus cyclic AMP 
ultimately will be that bomb will be hydrolyzed that cyclized compound to form adenosine then adenosine will bind to the adenosine a1 receptor this will then trigger the transmitter release what's the transmitter obviously dopamine so this is the way that you get a rebounded adenylate cyclase after long-term opioid addiction you also start getting calcium uh, uptake into the nerve terminal which enhances the transmitter release. So amphetamine does the same thing. If you look at the uh, nucleus accumbens, the, the first response from amphetamine is going to be a huge increase from basal as much as a tenfold increase in dopamine uh, within very short time frame after amphetamine um, presentation. Cocaine does the same thing in the uh, nucleus accumbens. You get a huge increase in dopamine secretion. And nicotine gives you a much smaller increase in dopamine. So amphetamine, tenfold. Cocaine, fourfold. Nicotine, about twofold increases after about one hour of uh, ingestion of either, uh, respectively, amphetamine, cocaine, or nicotine. Ethanol will also, in a dose-dependent manner, increase the amount of dopamine that's released. And the higher the concentration of ethanol, um, the higher the increase from basal amount of dopamine in the nucleus incumbens, all accumbens also associated, again, with this gradient effect of ethanol. So, Obviously, amphetamine, because it told you that's a tenfold, almost elevenfold increase, gives you a much greater release of dopamine than any of the other three drugs uh, of abuse I just mentioned to you. And it can actually cause neuroexcitotoxicity. Now, just to let you know that you also get a natural elevation of dopamine just by food intake. And this usually takes about 30 to 60 minutes after the initiation of digestion. But dopamine, part of the reward pathway. And here you get about a 1.5 increase in stimulation. Sex, similarly, um, you get an increase in dopamine release um, after the, uh, uh, shortly after the uh, sexual stimulation. And this will be about a twofold increase in dopamine. Once again, directly linked to the reward pathway. So what's the implication of this? The elucidation of the mechanism of drug addiction probably will help understand why these drugs are addictive and also may link to neuropsychiatric disorders that are motivational in nature because motivation is linked here. So the motivation drive is also known as saliency. And saliency is part of the reward pathway. Okay. And it involves the hippocampus and it involves memory and learning, therefore the amygdala. And it also involves the frontal cortex. Inhibitory control is also associated by executive function from the prefrontal cortex. So what are some of the principles of behavioral dynamics of addiction? 
First of all, behavioral tracks in the brain seem to compete for multiple levels of expression that is ascendancy to choice. An, expre an expression of uh, ascendancy is determined by the dominance of the various tracks. And so you have a strength of the prefrontal cortex to select and then a relevance or saliency that comes from the orbital frontal cortex. So relevance or saliency from the OFC, strength from the PFC. And this, of course, will then ultimately lead to a behavior that's expressed that is associated by the principles of those two tracks. So the activation of dopamine reward pathway initiates then a behavioral track. And this can lead then down the road to addiction, to ethanol, to drugs of abuse, for example. So how does the behavior become an addiction? This again is associated with the orbital frontal cortex playing the major role. Massive amount of dopamine being generated and then going directly to the OFC, which then triggers the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex then will result in a fusion of the executive decision-making with the behavioral response to reward and the prefrontal cortex then, or that is the executive decision-making of the PFs of the frontal cortex will start to mediate because of responding to the orbital frontal cortex, a behavior that includes the desire for the addictive agency. And that's what happened. You get an addiction behavior that gets expressed. So there's evidence that the central nervous system changes that occur are structural and functional. And you can see this in uh, scanning of the brain. So if you look at the orbital frontal cortex and the control versus the cocaine abuser, you get a decrease in metabolism in the OFC with continued use of cocaine, okay? So decrease in metabolism, of course, is going to relate to the production of ATP, right? And also to whatever secretory substances are generated from the OFC in response to the behavioral response, uh, in response to the behavioral mediated um, dopaminergic pathway. So this compromises assigning an appropriate value from the prefrontal cortex in terms of behavior. So for example, um, methamphetamine suppresses the expression of the dopaminergic pathway. The dopamine transporter known as DAT and the synaptic vesicle amine transporter VMAT are both suppressed, those protein expression of those two proteins are suppressed with continue, continued use of methamphetamine. So the level of expression of DAT and VMAT at the transcriptional level is markedly reduced upon cocaine abuse. And it's similar to what we see in Parkinson's disease. Okay. It's interesting.
For the dopamine transporter loss after heavy methamphetamine use, you can see this again under PET analysis. Uh, it's very striking, okay? You get a tremendous decrease in the amount of dopamine transport from those neurons, okay? And in association with that, there's also a compromise of cognitive functions that have been demonstrated. And this is linked to the diminution of the dopamine transporter secretion upon the continued use of methamphetamine. Motor function, you get a slower gait and you get an impaired balance. And this impairment correlates with the damage to that dopaminergic pathway. So what's the implication? The implication is you get structural and functional damage. You get a brain change or CNS damage that results from prolonged use of these drugs, including the methamphetamine, which is known as a psychostimulant. And I told you that's the most powerful one in stimulating dopamine. Remember, that's what I mentioned a few moments ago. And then this results in behavioral modification and it's reflected by compromised cognitive and indeed eventually motor functioning. So the reward system and addiction, again, is a decrease in the, the transporter, both the vesicular transporter and the direct dopaminergic transporter that you see in the nucleus accumbens and in other subcortical regions of the brain, which then control the amount of release of dopamine in association with the drug of abuse. And so that's why addiction leads to an ability to experience rewards becoming damaged uh, along with the, the saliency feature of the appetitive requirement for more of the drug. And there is a genetic vulnerability or predisposition, but there certainly is no a gene association that is that is linked directly to drugs of abuse. So there's no inevitability that's ever been demonstrated. And this has been looked at with twin studies where one twin or an identical twins, where one twin versus the other will be addicted to a drug and you look for changes in the genome, obviously, there is the, those two genomes are identical. So what you get are epigenetic modifications. So most of drug addiction is an epigenetic alteration of gene expression. And that's what you see in the DAT and the VMAT genes. Those are the two that were first described. So there can be inheritability at the epigenetic level. Remember, the epigenome can be inherited, certainly somatically, but even through uh, sexual reproduction, because methylation and acetylation and uh, ubiquitinylation and propionylation and succinylation of either nucleotides or amino acids associated with histones and chromatin for chromatin retailering can be inherited. And this can be described as an acetylome or a methylome, for example. And it has been described in... Um, disorders and including addiction. Now there's a great deal of variability and gender variability as this somatic or more rare genetic epigenetic epigenomic inheritance has been followed. So there's complex genetics involved here because you have complex phenotypes. 
and the complex phenotype then results in a discussion of whether or not there are specific risk factors, for example, the children of alcoholics. And you can ask, what is the vulnerability? This would be a readout for someone, say, in psychology or psychiatry. Is the vulnerability have to do with initiation of drug abuse or the liking, or that is the, the uh, desire to use drugs once they, the initial phase has been uh, passed? That includes a continuation of the stimulation that the drug provides in terms of the dopaminergic pathway? And then does that mean that the individual becomes addicted or stops somewhere in the cycle of abuse? And then again, is there specificity to particular drugs since they all seem to be functioning at the level of dopamine? So the contribution of genetic factors to nicotine have been looked at. And it suggests that there may be an epigenetic association with a liability to initiate, which could be somewhere around 50%. But the transition to dependence, once nicotine is being used regularly, seems to be a much higher level of epigenetic factor association, perhaps as high as 70%. Whereas uh, that, that dependence can be broken and broken which means that the epigenetic profile is, not, is, of course, erased at this level, if indeed that is the correlate. And these are only correlates. These are not anywhere associated with causal linkages because the kind of genes we're talking about don't just include pathways for dopamine translocation, but for multiple integration of genes that are associated with things like signal transduction cascades, which of course can have multiple valences. So all we can say at this point is that genetics and then epigenomics may influence the neurobiological interaction with the environment. And this then could lead to ultimately an association with addiction. This is far downstream from what you would call a genet a true genetic predisposition. I want to make that absolutely clear. So could you hear this a lot, and it's been published in the literature without actually looking at the genome. So you can see how using an hypothesis that says, um, is there inheritance of this essentially acquired characteristic of drug dependency? Well, a large part of that drug dependency can, of course, be associated with environment. And as we know from previous lectures that I've given and perhaps that you've heard elsewhere, the environment in association with the genome, the inherited genome, and then as I've made very clear, the neuroendocrine and neuroendocrine immune systems in association with the epigenomic retailering will link with the environment. So environmental cues of children growing up in an atmosphere that is linked to drug abuse and drug addiction could well then be masking what appears to be a genomic read epigenomic inheritance because the environment plays a major role there. And this, I think, has been... Um, certainly described and, and certainly 
reported in the literature, but not nearly as much as the emphasis on genetic association, which I think is actually a misnomer. It's really epigenomic association. And while that can be uh, demonstrated in animal models, so you take animals and you get them addicted on drugs of abuse, and then you do mating and mated pairs, and then you look at offspring and you might find associated addictive disorders in their offspring. Those studies have never really carefully looked at mutations or epimutations, because when they do, they get mixed results, and they have never really been carried out sufficiently in the literature that I've observed. And I have looked at the literature over the last, what, 20 years since this has been uh, studied, where you get a real solid epigenomic profile. However, having said all of that, what are, what are the major things I say about epigenetic modification is that epigenetics gets written, it gets read, and then it becomes or can become erased. But during that uh, phasic response, it may be difficult to find methylomic, acetylomic patterns that are clearly associated with a given phenotype, such as something as complex as addiction. So I'm going to stop here. Um, this is a New Year's Eve. I wish you a happy New Year. And, uh, and that's all I have to say for right now from Authentic Biochemistry. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying goodbye for now. <music>